hopefully the internet's not gonna shit itself. From the dingy warehouses of cinema, this is the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 33, and my name is Jakob. Uh, my name's Ewan. My name's Kyle. Right, okay, so great to have you all with us, as you can possibly uh, probably see. You know, Nick and Jack are not here with us, as they are currently in Venice watching great movies like Spencer, The Card Counter, Dune, and probably a whole bunch of not so great movies too because you know that's what festivals are for but no worries we have great people here and then we're going to have a great time right so anyway last week we talked about um well we had a bit of a break from all that high octane frenetic movie making we quite often indulge in and we talked about ridley scott's a good year so uh you know oh that was that was an episode and a half so today we're doing kind of what ridley scott did right after he made a good year just we're going right back into <laughs> in, into that kind of movie making that he, that we like. So you know, after making a rom com in South of France, he, he made American Gangster just to cleanse the palate. So that's what we're doing. You know, back to violent escapist entertainment, and we are discussing Ben Wheatley's Free Fire. Vernon is in the blue suit. Who's the other fellow? Martin. He was a panther, but it didn't work out. Vernon was misdiagnosed as a child genius, and he never got over it. What does he know? He made a talking head boy. An international asshole. Vernon, these are the boys from across the pond. Well, everyone's from somewhere, eh? Justine, how you talk? As gorgeous as ever. Well, you've uh, put on a bit of weight. Did somebody impregnate you? Fuck off. Good. Still a chance. What the fuck is that accent? Oh, I think it's like Swiss or something. Austrian. Austrian. What do you say we check out the merch? That's why we are. Eh? Free Fire is an ensemble action comedy thriller, I suppose, that sees a group of IRA terrorists led by Killian Murphy's character. I can't remember his name. Chris, I think his name is. As they attempt an arms deal with a group led by an eccentric guy called Vernon, called, played by Charlotte Copley, all mediated by a woman named Justine, played by Brie Larson, and officiated by a swanky beardsman, Ord, played by Army Hammer. However, nothing goes to plan. The guns are not what the IRA folks wanted, and it turns out that some folks in, the, uh, in this deal have some personal beef to take care of. Emotions boil over, and the arms deal turns into a violent shootout. And on top of that, some unannounced mysterious shooters descend on the party as well. The bullets start flying, and it quickly becomes apparent that nobody might make it out alive from the warehouse. Now, I don't think there's much of a story to tell as far as the behind-the-scenes ideas are concerned. What's worth kind of mentioning, I suppose, is the uh, fact that the film spent a few years in development due to a bunch of people dropping out of the project here and now. Um, so, however, what is interesting, the way I understand things surrounding the production, the entire film was kind of partially hinging on upon the fact that Killian Murphy, Murphy um, once approached Ben Whitley, Wheatley and um, wanted to work with him. So the story was kind of just itself allegedly inspired by a police report and of a gruesome crime scene in a warehouse somewhere. But that's mostly it. 
Olivia Wilde was originally cast in the role that went eventually to Brie Larson, and Luke Evans, I think, was supposed to play Vernon. Apparently, the role was reworked when Charlotte Copley came on came on board because you know, suppose it would have been hard to, for Luke Evans to play a South African convincingly without sounding ridiculous. So I suppose he wasn't South African, but you know, when it wasn't Charlotte Copley, so you, you figure it out. Anyway, the movie premiered t- at TIFF in 2016, and then I think it was released early 2017. And on a seven million dollar budget, made just shy of four million, so it was a massive bomb. Even though critics were positive overall on the film, seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and praised its frenetic energy and sense of humor and God know all that. And but all the audiences just did not turn out for it like at all. Then, so you know, it has to be said that the film has its defenders, and some some entries on Letterboxd will probably testify to that. If you you know, so where do you stand? On Ben Wheatley's Free Fire. Is it a great genre film that capitalizes on its premise and provides high octane entertainment, or is it a dud enthralled to its gimmick? What is your take on Free Fire? How about Kyle? How about you kick us off? Yeah, so this one had been on my watch list for years since it came out, really. Uh, I remember liking the trailers, I just never got around to seeing it. After seeing it, nah, it's okay. It, it really struggles at creating a a kind of compelling through line it starts out kind of feeling like a 90s tarantino knockoff and then as the hour-long shootout kind of commences there's there's a major issue with spatial awareness and and kind of making it clear where everyone is in relation to everyone else which which kind of creates this chaotic feel that I didn't really vibe with. It's not like a worthless movie or anything. I think it has a great cast. I think it has entertaining moments, some good jokes. But overall, I just don't think it worked for me. Okay, okay. Um, Ewan, do you want to follow up? Uh, yeah. Um, <coughs> way back when, when I was first starting out as a film critic, this was one of the first films I reviewed. And deep, deep down in a box somewhere, I've got my original review of that, and it's awful. I did enjoy it then. Uh, rewatching it, I was a lot less keen on it the second time round, but uh, there's still a lot within this that makes me think that Ben Wheatley is at a lost cause as a director, which is what I'd thought after I'd watched Rebecca, and it was what I'd certainly thought after I'd watched In the Height, uh, In the Earth. Um, I think to, to touch on what Kyle said, where it feels like a knockoff, it, it does. It feels like a knockoff, but I imagine that's, you know, it's, I mean, Martin Scorsese produced this, I think, and um, it's it's kind of part and parcel of anything Martin Scorsese's name gets hooked to. It's more or less like this. You can see where that influence comes from. And it's Ben Wheatley trying to do a big ensemble blowout sort of action, even comedy sort of. And it's, it has its moments. I think there's some awful stuff in here, but I think the bulk of it's quite all right. Um, it's probably one of his better movies from what I've seen. I think the only thing that would be better than it so far from what I've seen is a field in England. But even then, it's, it's not a very high bar because um, it's like Jakob said, uh, this film didn't make money, but I, I couldn't name a Ben Wheatley film that has made money. Um, no, I, I do like it. It's... It's got a decent ensemble, but I think it's the likes of, you know, Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley that really bring it up. And, you know, it's, it, we, we've seen this type of film before. We've seen the characters that are involved in it. And it's sort of the, the, the plot points that go on 
to link these characters together are kind of nonsense. It's it's one of those films where you, you can enjoy it how far you can throw it. It's it's nothing spectacular, but it's kind of one of those films where if it's on like Channel Four late at night, it's like oh I'll pop that on, and that's that that's the best you can get from Free Fire, really. <laughs> um, wow, this is. Like at some point, I, I, will, I should have probably just led with the um, the fact this this is supposed to be this is this is a part of the Jack takeover of the show because I lost a bet, right? At some point, I think I, I think it was like the Fountain episode or something like this because I I I thought that Jack, <clears throat> that Nick would like Black Swan more than Wrestler, and it turns out he didn't. So th- this is something that Jack proposed, and I think he's a big fan, and he can't be here because he's watching Dune. So no, he's he's in Venice. He was watching great films, and he can't make it. So <laughs> so that's 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 that. Um, and I think he would have been a staunch defender of this film. I think he at some point in one of the earlier episodes, he he, he did tell a story about like one of one of the like the times that he was. I think playing this in his in his like student cinema and they were just cranking the sound up to like eleven and everyone's eardrums went fucking pop because <laughs> because of all the of all the gunshots. Um, but in all seriousness, like I watched this originally in the cinemas. That was I think like March February twenty seventeen something like this. So it was like the dumpster dive sort of month of releases. Like nothing great really gets released like uh, right after sort of the Oscar things kind of just come out, start finish coming out in the UK at least. And I'm I wasn't a fan. I can, I can especially when I'm I'm listening to Kyle and, and just like that Tarantino knockoff, and I'm looking at my own review from the time. Um, I might as well just I've got two paragraphs that basically just summarize what I what I thought. And then it was basically, and I quote. Once the bullets are flying and Ben Wheatley settles into a rhythm, everything starts to slowly disintegrate, only to look like a pile of Play-Doh left for three hours on a windowsill on a sunny afternoon. It turns out that Free Fire doesn't have much more substance beneath its gimmick, and while it has some really funny moments, the accents quickly go stale and the hammed-up performances actually become annoying. Wheatley in this film managed to show that it is, after all, possible to paint oneself into a corner in the span of 20 minutes without much of an idea of how to progress the initial premise into something compelling, organic, and entertaining, Free Fire quickly becomes tedious and, and frankly boring, which is saying something when the entire film wraps up in under 90 minutes. So that's that was my original thoughts. And I was thinking, okay, this was this. Let's just say very often in, in here, I come to revisit films that I may have not liked in the past, and then in with the intention to reevaluate. And sometimes I'm, I'm more often than not, I will just you know, things will go up for me. Like Mission Impossible two two weeks ago, just masterpiece, right? Um, but I watched this last night, <laughs> and um, I had the same feelings like in the cinema. Like I stopped watching this, I had no idea what happened. So I watched it this morning again. I watched it twice, just to have an, just to, just to be able to have a conversation about this because I retained absolutely zero after the first sort of rewatch. It was still hard. This film's just after I I, I took I, I looked at the uh, at the sort of time bar in there after 30 minutes it loses me because this is when the shootout starts and everything kind of just like pretty much what Kyle says you have no sense of geography so half the time I'll be like just oh this guy's not dead oh great like who is he again <laughs> and things happen like this um it's well it, it has to be said it's a period piece so it's supposed to be set in 1978 i don't know if it actually i mean i think i know why it's been set in, in, set in 1970 but we might as well get there but um honestly 
uh well i i can't i can't i don't want to say that it just went down for me it's just a film that just doesn't really get retained in my brain like almost at all it's it's not bad it's not good and it is a tarantino knockoff like through and through it it is ben weekly's attempt to make reservoir dogs i think in my in my opinion it is set in a warehouse these people are just you know like that dialogue is kind of just written in a way to kind of just mimic this sort of hip sort of iconic sort of style of the early 90s Tarantino and you you know just everything kind of sounds very written but also very funny and and, and very um relatable but in contrast to Tarantino lines none of these things are memorable like there's a few I actually struggled putting together a top three and bottom three this is how difficult you know for me it was to um, actually fish out certain things so yeah so so that this is kind of my opening impressions on on this and I, I have a feeling that you know I think we should probably just you know, not normally wouldn't be just talking about like oh what what do you think about the direction? It's like I think the good question to ask would be just what do you what do you think went wrong? Like well, let's just behave like forensic scientists trying to look at look at a plane crash and figure out where's the fucking black box and what what went wrong in here? Like what what's what makes the what would make this better and what make what makes this film fail and and what what what's your opinion on this i <clears throat> i think the main detriment of this movie is it's an ensemble movie where after it ends you don't remember any of the characters like all the characters are instantly forgettable i remember like one of their names and it's because it's stevo um but every everyone else it just fades into the background. They don't really even have characters. You're not rooting for anyone. You don't really care who wins, who dies. At least that was my experience. And after it ended, I like you, Jakob, I, I was like, when I'm coming out of this podcast, I'm like, oh no, do I remember enough about this movie to even talk about it? Because yep. it's just, it's kind of evaporated. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, this is um, my my note exact verbatim. Nobody to root for. <laughs> like, that's pretty much what I said. Like, it's an ensemble. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Ensemble piece does not mean that. Oh, you, it's just a bunch of people. It's like you like Knives Out is an ensemble piece, but you can pick out characters in there. It's just the 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 leading character is kind of like well undefined in there because you just. Um, the sort of importance shifts between characters. In here, nobody, nobody's important. I, I suppose this may be part of the gimmick, but I don't know. It's just I, I, I had the same sort of feeling as though, as though, like I didn't like. Am I supposed to root for the IRA guys? Am I supposed to root for for the swanky his Rhodesian special forces dude? Or uh, who, who, who's you know, uh, who, whose shoulders am, am I supposed to grab onto? Like I don't, I don't get it. I think it's the, the issue is that Ben Willey's direction here it makes you think sort of well if 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 there's no characters we can adapt ourselves to or relate to then it's a reliance on the set pieces and sort of the the energy that comes from that it's uh, the the main issue is like you said Kyle it's, none of these characters are memorable you could, the only name that you can remember is Steve was because you know Jackass but um, Justine I remembered Justine yeah but I think woman as well. <laughs> the main issue is that it's a reliance on set pieces. Ben Whitley's thought of a bunch of things that he seems to think is cool and has put them on the film. But what's the set the, piece? What's the set piece? Uh, 
well, it's that's not the, bit, the entire it's, film, isn't it? Like, because it's in a warehouse. No, no, I mean like little little bits in that piece where it's like Michael Smiley's in the office and it sets on fire, or the bit where they're just he he wants to have these character interactions and he wants this pulpy dialogue to be like really fast and quick witted, and it's yeah, to a degree, I understand what he's trying to aim for, and and bits of it work, but you can't have that without memorable characters. And I think it's the issue is that it's he's so focused and fixated on that 70s iconography, the the suits, the 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 music. It's like you've got Creedence Clearwater and you've got John Denver on the soundtrack. They're really just record scratch moments more than anything, just to sort of say this is the 1970s more than anything else. It's not used in a way that represents the characters, it's representing the, the time period. In the um in the IMDb trivia section, I saw that Ben. The reason that he said it in the seventies was that was so they didn't have cell phones. Yes, that, that was. I was reason. just about to say it because it yeah. was basically in in modern times. It would be like, <laughs> why are they not calling for help? <laughs> it's le- it's literally the like he he was trying to engineer a premise for a hor- for a slasher horror film for a home mm-hmm. invasion film so that you know like the victim cannot call put the police. Yeah, okay, that's all. That's all this is, and then it kind of just translates to re- because then he didn't re put any. I don't think anybody put any thought into the period being anything more than than a get out of jail free card, because it's yeah. literally just in costumes. Like you slap a, a mustache on Killian Murphy, all of a sudden he's in the seventies, right? It's it's window dressing. Yes, yeah. it is. Like you, you put like you put Brie Larson in a scarf, and all of a sudden she's just. <laughs> It's just yeah, it's supposed to yeah. It's just the music, this the set. Well, the cost. It's only the costumes. Like these people speak in a way that we speak. Like they don't sound like they're from the period. Like well, maybe Charlotte Copley calls people's calls the woman the woman bird. I suppose maybe that's part. Of, <laughs> I don't know, but it it it's just it's it's fake. It's a it's a fake gimmick, as in to keep people in and to keep and and basically to to give them sort of. A forward momentum because after like 20 minutes of them shooting on each other you realize there's nothing else to do in here like they they've literally just dug themselves into holes and then for them to actually move somewhere they need to have a reason to do something so they they they, they introduce the phone upstairs it's all we can call the call call for help from there which is quite a funny moment as well because when the guy picks up the phone it's a it's a cold call it's like congratulations you won <laughs> send me me laugh yeah. <laughs> that was a giggle. That's the, that's the issue, though. It's like those nice moments, they, they're really good. It's just a shame that there isn't more of it. And I think the issue is that Ben Wheatley's just trying to sort of feed the audience along. He's trying to string them along with a, a sound bites and bits that they're going to recognize as like mm-hmm. pop culture references for that period. And it's nothing more than a backdrop for what is essentially reservoir talks. And I And I just go back to the fact that. The spatial awareness is what really bothered me. I've mentioned it before, but there were so many times where I didn't know who was where in relation to what. And someone would get shot. I'm like, who shot them? Mm -hmm. Because it was so unclear in the edit. And And also there's ricochets everywhere. Yeah. And I just wanted, (laughs) I I wanted so bad. uh, I guess the the thing that comes into my mind is there's a shot in, in Don't Breathe where they, they establish the geography of the house when they first walk in. They just have a part where the camera just pans through mm-hmm. and shows every location of the house. And I wanted that. That's so important for a, for a one-location movie. They kept, like, introducing, like, all right, oh, there's, a, there's an upper section, and, oh, there's, like, a back rooms, and but we didn't know about those. It was just a way to, like, kind of add levels onto it. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I think part of the uh, inspiration, I can't remember when it's from IMDb, IMDb Trivia or from somewhere else uh, I've read, when Ben Wheatley wanted to kind of merge Reservoir Dogs with like a Counter-Strike aesthetic. So he wanted this to be like a live action video game, which is, I suppose this, this, this should come with the sort of chaos of like, I don't know who's shooting at me, but the point of a video game that you, is that one of these people is you. So like you can turn around and figure out where, where, where shit is, even if, you know, um, you know, if, if you're, if you, if you're unaware of what's coming from where in here, you're reliant on a camera that specifically and predict, well, specifically and um, purposefully obscures things from you. As in, he, like, I, I don't quite get, like, this, this, this actually became annoying after a while. For the first 30 minutes, it's, it's very sort of, you know what's what. Like, you know, this team is that, is, is those people, this, this team is those people. And they, they have a bit of a drama going on there. And then, well, there is a pretense of some even character development, although it's, it's kind of de- delivered in the most sort of, I want to say the laziest way possible, because the actual, if you think about it, okay, well, they, these, these two groups meet for an arms deal and then something needs to happen. There needs to be an inciting incident for something to happen, right? So I think the, the film was written in a way that, that he just envisioned, because um, he wrote it with his wife. I think he writes with his wife. Um They've envisioned that, okay, well, there will be these two groups just scattered around the building and it's going to be chaos on screen. I think that was the premise. So we're just supposed to be succeeded by it. I don't think it's as entertaining as they, as they thought it would have been. Uh, but they, you need to kind of get them to that point. So they envision, okay, well, so these two groups meet and then they figure out that one of these people, Steve-O, assaulted one of the other guy's cousin. And then that's, uh, that's what happens. And, you know, but then you're supposed to believe people's words because they say things there's no, there's the show. Don't tell rule is basically just violated brutally in here because I just, am I, why am I supposed to care that these people are having beef with one another, especially that the, the other guy looks like for, for some, for the longest time I thought, is this Seth Rogen? Why he lost weight? <laughs> and it's not Seth Rogen, it's Jack Rayner, right? But, uh, but yeah, it's just, like it's very difficult to care, and I, I was just thinking back to some like Reservoir Dogs, which is also single location, and the important and the important bit is that you spend time with these characters and you learn learn about these characters through dialogue mostly, but you you, you do care and you, you can distinguish between them, even though they weren't fucking the same suits, right? You figure out who's who. And here, like this doesn't matter. The only two people who are, I mean, that's my opinion, but the only two pe- two people who. Um, look convincing to me are Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley and that's because no they play IRA agents right and th- they have convincing accents because they're their natural accents well that's the thing it was it's what you said about the dialogue you know show don't tell it's the, the comparison there with Reservoir Dogs and this is that Reservoir Dogs' dialogue's fantastic Free Fire is like it's a uh, Babu Sisu who plays Martin Someone makes a remark, it's like, oh, he's a failed panther. It's like, okay, that gives you the context of the 1970s, the Black Panther movement. What does it actually do for that character? It doesn't do anything. It tells us something about him, but the information's useless. We we learn things about a lot of these characters, but like we've all managed to forget most of their names, it, it's not it's not detailed, it's either relevant or important to, to what the film's trying to do. And even then, I don't think Wheatley knows what he wants this film to do. By all means, I, I did have fun with it. It's 
but I can agree with both of you where it's immediately forgettable. It's mm-hmm. it's fizzled away. It's I, I can't point to one single scene where it's like that that's fantastic. That's that movie defined in a nutshell. That's what people should go in to see it for. I, I remember when I first watched it, I always thought, oh Shartle Copley's accent, that's funny. And it's like, is it is it really? Is it, is it that is that the, the comedy character of this one? <laughs> Shartle Copley had an expiration date, I think, as well. Because that was at the time when he was still coming. Was it after Chappie? I think it was after Chappie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was after Chappie. He expired around the time of the year team and then still trundled on for another three to four years. <laughs> I suppose because he has a strong accent and I suppose he, do, he, he doesn't know how to switch it off. Right? He, he can't pretend that he's, say, for, for lack of a better word, say, like, let's just say he, he would be given a role who's distinctly American. He wouldn't be able to pull this off. So he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in this regard, that he either has to just wear this accent on his sleeve and then pretend that his name is, uh, you know, I'm John and I'm from Los Angeles and then whatever. But he see, says this in a, in a very sort of hard South African accent and just expects the audience to believe. Or he just has to be, you know, pigeonholed as the South African guy forever. Or maybe like you could maybe pull off a New Zealand, New Zealand guy if you just toned down a few, you know, on a, a few consonants, I suppose. I but, actually found him to be the mo- one of the most entertaining aspects of the yeah. movie, honestly. Uh, he's, the, he's, he's kind of the one that is like fully committing to the bit. I think he understands like tonally more so than others. I also thought Jack Rayner to a certain extent was another was one, understanding. Ar- the Army Hammer also kind of just, yeah. Yeah. does work in here. He's kind of like, the like, cast is give not a the shit. problem. Army Hammer is playing himself. I mean, it's quite a lot of talent in here. Like if you think a about lot. this, like, yeah. in, especially for the year, it's like there's Army Hammer, there's Shadow Copley, there's Brie Larson post Oscar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. Noah Taylor's in this for a bit as well, and Noah Taylor's a phenomenal actor, and he doesn't get enough credence for his work, but he's in this, and I, I, I don't remember him being in it. He's on the credit list. I is, don't he, is he the he first does. guy who dies? <laughs> I don't remember who dies first. I don't know. Well, that's another problem. Like for some reason, uh, I couldn't really remember whether people actually were dead or not because they would just play dead, or yeah, oh, this guy's it's... alive. Oh, that's great. Fair enough. It's it's nice to have like a, a a double or like a switch at the end that you know expect them, but you can't do that for every character where it's like we don't know if they're dead or not because at that point it just gets too confusing to work. And it's when when you're all sat there watching and thinking, are they dead? Are they going to crop up again? It's the sign of a mismanaged cast where Wheatley is trying to do so many things with so many different people, but what he's trying to do really with this plot is nothing much. It's like there's the romance angle between Murphy and Larson. Is it is it Murphy and Larson at the end? Mm-hmm. That just comes out of the blue, and it's no. It just, feels they have, they like, have a scene in the middle. It's like oh, no, just before things start, he's like, "Oh, do you want to go for dinner?" And and she just says no, and he just says, "Oh, I forget I asked." But then that's turned around at the end, and I I don't get why. Is it the brush with death that's changed their mind? Like, there's no point to it. There's no. Well, she shoots reason. him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's kind it's, of like, like nothing. I still, don't, I still don't understand why she shot him. No, no, like you tell me. I don't know because he's Irish. I'm allowed oh, to say that. As She's racist against Irish. Oh, the, 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 be- the better Irish comment was when Chateau Copley says because he's like, oh, I'm Rhodesian Special Forces, and he was just like, well, manners. You could learn some some manners. You know, you could learn a thing or two from the English. <laughs> I'm like, wow. It's funny that you bring up that he was inspired by video games because 
this kind of felt like watching someone else play like a match of Call of Duty in that it's really violent. It's entertaining at moments, but it's also repetitive and um, forgettable. I mean, I, I'm, okay, well, the, the only games I watch as, an, as a spectator would be StarCraft. Because I, I I don't know, just it feels like just watching sports to me. But say when you, because there's there's a spectator element to to how the game is projected on the screen. Because you watch sure. the map. I've never had the sort of I, the same sort of drive towards watching first person shooters like of any kind. As yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to spectate them because mm-hmm. it kind of feels like I'm watching from someone else's perspective. So it's literally like the equivalent of watching somebody else have sex while I'm here. I'm like <laughs> just. I could be doing this, but I'm not. It's uh, yeah, it's a very sad affair. <laughs> I've watched someone play Monopoly before, but other than that, I don't really watch video games because it's like <laughs> I I can do this myself, and at mm-hmm. the same time, when I go to do it myself, I'm not that interested, anyways. And I think that's the issue for Free Fire. It's yeah, I could go and play video games instead of watch this, but either or, I'm not getting an interesting experience. It's See? it's fun, but it's empty. See what what mm-hmm. this lacks to me. I mean, this com- comes back to characters, but it, I know, I, I know what it would have probably precipitated in terms of critical response because people would then latch on onto this being a knockoff of Reservoir Dogs through and through. But this this film would have benefited from someone actually being like an embedded FBI agent in there. Yeah. That you could just there would be stakes because well, what if they find out that he's you know, or you find out half halfway through that one of these people is not who they are. So it would be like the thing, or like the hateful eight, or like Reservoir Dogs, and you know, like you actually present presented with stakes because then half half of the shootout would be okay. Well, do we survive, or do we take care of the snitch, or do we take care of the cops? Because if we don't take care of him, he's gonna probably just quickly call call for backup or whatever. So there's 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 urgency in in that sort of development, but then it would be basically like Reservoir Dogs with a fifty five minute long shootout. But that one happenstance inclusion of just randomly discovering that they're an FBI informant would change so much about the film for the better, where it's, it's like you said, it's the teamwork that comes after that. It's do they stick together or do they just continue the shootout? It's, it, I mean, even like the, the first 20 minutes of it, when it's building up the characters, when it has that slow build and the time to actually engage with these characters, none of them are particularly interesting. They're just mannequins for 70s culture and style. It's not as if we're learning anything about them. Like, w- there's no doubt about them just being individual people. That like the the small talk between them is rather nice at times. But again, it's forgettable. It's not adding layers to anything that we're learning for these characters. There's nothing at the start of the film that's really adapted successfully to actually matter in the climax. That's what I was going to bring up. Like the first act is superficially entertaining until you realize that nothing anyone was saying in it matters at all or has any purpose beyond just playful banter. It doesn't set up anything that, you know, pays off. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. There's a few things that pay off, but it's almost, it's, it's blink and you miss it. Um, When they say, oh, they go into the warehouse and I think they say, um, Oh, what did they? What did they make in here in this factory? And it's like, ah, whatever it was, they don't want it anymore, right? And it turns out, it, I think at the end you can see that it's like umbrella factory or something like this. By the way, what a fucking shitty place to make an umbrella, make umbrellas. But it kind of becomes a bit ironic because I think um, in one scene, Army Hammer wants to light a cigarette, 
and then sprinkler systems come on, and he would have actually used an umbrella. <laughs> That's such a deep joke for something that most. I mean, no, like it's so miss. deeply. Like you actually, like, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, <laughs> I've watched this film twice, and I didn't realize you were in an umbrella. Factory. No, it's just, yeah. <laughs> Do they not need umbrellas in the 1970s? No, it says because they the, all had leather, and it would just slide off them. I swear, is this like somewhere on on the world says like Wilson's umbrellas, Watson's umbrellas, something like this. <laughs> and, then, and by the way, like the one one thing I kind of want to say, this was shot in Brighton, but so so it's it's yeah again I think, uh, or Ben Wheatley is just make making Great Britain look like America or something. I mean, but then again, it's a warehouse, so so who cares? But yeah, uh, apparently during during shooting they had few instances where the cops would pull, uh, would pull in because um, some neighbors were worried that there's a there's some crimes there's a crime going on because <laughs> people are shooting <laughs> um but yeah like i'm i don't i, I don't i don't know like, I, on some level i actually do want like when, no when it comes to the first 25 minutes that actually goes like this and the, i know most of it's banter there's one particular thing and we'll make an appearance in the top three i suppose when killian murphy starts inspecting the guns that's the most effective moment in the entire film because then he, he wants to have he wants to have a guard at the rifle and then he just says where's the where's the ammo oh, where's the, okay he starts loading the magazine and army farmer army farmer army hammer pulls out his own gun and then all of a sudden just tension shows in the place and because he's pissed off because it's not the guns he wanted Charlotte Copley is like who the fuck is this guy and then you know it the army hammer is like, I'm gonna shoot someone, someone in like three seconds or less because you know, like these, this guy's loading uh, ammunition into an assault rifle. It becomes in- palpable. It becomes interesting, but it kind of dissipates immediately. I think, I think the moment where where Jack Rayner takes the first shot and it, and it's this slow mo, this slow motion shot. I, I thought that was an effective moment of uh, things are beginning to pop off. Um, I wonder where it's going to go from here. And unfortunately, it just doesn't go anywhere that interesting. No, they just hide behind rocks and start shooting at each other. And then you yeah. lo- immediately lose any sense of geography. That's right. <laughs> and, and I think that it also comes down to there's not enough coverage, like cinematography-wise. There's not enough wide shots. It's all very close to the actors. And it's all – it's cut very quick, too. So – I was just hoping for like it to pull out and me to see like, I guess how far people are away from each other. And like, you know, it was just, it was the consistent problem for me throughout the, uh, the last two acts of the movie. It's if, if there are any, I don't remember them, but there's never really any shot that shows one location where yeah. two characters might be. And then another location where the others might be. There's no stretch of that. There's no real, there's there's few shots I think where there will just be a close up of two people of one person talking to another person so they will be shouting it's like ah right, whatever you doing and then someone says fuck you and then and then there's one there will be one shot just after that when you realize they're actually three meters apart and yeah then, <laughs> yeah but then it's almost like a joke <laughs> but. I honestly, but, um, part of me wants to believe that Ben Wheatley won't, because I, well, I loved, ter- um, was it Down Terrace? I loved Kill List. Kill List actually is pretty good. I like Kill List. Yeah. Um, very good. Um, so he has, a side series is amazing, um, but 
I have a feeling that he, well, I want to believe that he knows what he's doing in here, as in, because I think this is his first bona fide, maybe the only one, the only action film he's ever made. So I want to believe that he knows what he's doing in terms of the camera work. As you say, it's, it's all close-ups, and like, more often than not, I'll be I'll be willing to bet a fiver that when a filmmaker doesn't know what they're doing or is not feeling confident enough, would in, would gravitate towards close-ups because it's easier to manage the frame. Uh, but just you lose any geography it kind of goes out the window so i want to believe that he's doing it on purpose to actually purposefully make you feel like it's chaos like it's bullets just whizzing you know right above your head and then if you just peer out for half a second you're gonna get your brain short you know blown blown out so it's just but 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 yeah but it might just be that he probably just didn't quite know how to make this happen and then he on and maybe with the footage they got the editor will be like what am, what am i supposed to do with this so so i don't know it just it's a bit of a mess just to put it politely yeah yeah one of the only i guess set pieces that worked for me was the uh was the portion at the end with uh with jack rayner in the van and john denver playing and then um, Steve-O starts hanging off the, the side of it. And that was mostly clear. And I, I thought that was an entertaining uh, kind of piece. That's the only sort of distinguishable set piece I can think of, actually, out of this. That it has its own yeah. geography. It has its own sort of beginning, middle, and the end. It's, it has a dramatic arc. Yeah. Because even like with the whole quest for the phone call, it's interspersed with everything else. It's almost like you forget. Oh, the smileys on the on the on the way up. Oh, okay, well, that, this guy's all. I don't know. Like I, on some on some level, I thought that eventually then they all they will all descend on the on the stupid phone in there. One of then, one of the yeah. so one of the most confusing pieces to me was there's a part near the end where Brie Larson goes up to like the catwalk and grabs a rifle and like aims it at people. And then it doesn't cut back to her for like 15 minutes. And she guess I guess she just moves to the ground and shoots them from the ground instead of, I didn't understand it. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when um, was it? Uh, Babu Sisa, when, when he just emerges, like all, all of a sudden he goes like, I'm back, baby. Like, you know, oh, yeah. He just stands up and just all of a sudden, like no one's shooting at him. What's going on? Like, yeah. just why are you not shooting at this person? Like, are you just so dumbfounded that he thought he was dead because he has a brain? He has yeah. his brain hanging out. And then he just dies anyway. So there's not like a. Just ironically on his own, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, it was supposed to be funny. I didn't really think the joke landed. Well, that's no, because I was confused it's... because then there's someone shoots someone. It's like, oh, this guy's alive. Fuck, you know. <laughs> it's because he's he's trying to make jokes, but at the expense of the rules he's trying to create for his narrative. And it's it's a difficult trade-off because, what? yeah, fair enough, he's wanting to get a few laughs out of people, but really you've got to, you know, you can't sacrifice the actual makings of your structure and your rules for the film with a cheap pop about a guy we thought was dead. You know, it's... Yeah. The, the the risk or the reward there is a bit ridiculous for him to even consider doing that. No, I mean, I mean, uh, and all, I don't even know whether you, you, I, would I be comfortable saying that this film has structure. It has a gimmick, mm. and then that's pretty much all this is. Like, let's just put a film in a warehouse. Let's just make like to me, this was basically. Let's just take the final scene 
uh, of Reservoir Dogs, the Mexican standoff at the end, and stretch it into 60 minutes. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And actually, it has a similar ending because, like, the cops kind of show up at the end, and then, like, you don't see what happened. Like, the, well, uh, you know, he doesn't, no one has the balls to actually finish because, like, Reservoir Dogs actually finishes with the cops shooting Harvey Keitel. Right? Uh, and here, she like Justine just walks out, and then you, you see the you see the flashing lights, and you just kind of just this would be the moment to actually say this. Oh, she's an FBI agent, or something like this, or or just 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 to play along and just leave you with something else to chew on. This would even work better. Although I would have preferred to actually know that someone else is not who they say they are. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's a problematic film. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I would say I've been saying like uh, the three act. There's not really three acts. There's a first act and then a second act. And it, it, in a way, it did feel like an excuse for them to say, oh, we made an hour long. We made one of the longest shootouts because uh, I think on IMDb, it's technically the longest single shootout like for a film. It's like 55 minutes long. 50, 55 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I'm glad I'm glad I guess I'm glad they can say that. They made the longest shootout, but at what cost? Exactly. It's a, a lot of the characters just feel like tokens rather than people. Mm-hmm. They're just built up as people and groups that were around at the time of the 1970s. You have the IRA, you have the Black Panthers, you have the South Africans, you have the woman, you have all these different groups of people that are just presented as very flat minimalists. They're not presented as having a personality because there's no time to give us one. Except there is, if he hadn't spent 55 minutes on a shootout that loses sense of its, if its location. It's, the issue is that the shootout's so central to the narrative, yet at the same time is so against the narrative. It's, it's actively trying to escape this box that we at least put it in of these people are here, that person's there, this is where they're going to go, this is why they're going there. And it, it doesn't matter because nobody knows where anybody is. It doesn't, you know... It's, it's because he hasn't given us the perspective, like Jakob said earlier, of where these extra rooms are, what the actual size of the warehouse is. For all we know, this warehouse could be the size of a football pitch, could be the size of, like, a bathroom. Who knows? Because we, we're not... It would have been a good film. State the whole thing in a bathroom. <laughs> like, s- stretch the uh, scene, the elevator scene in Die Hard with a Vengeance into 90 minutes. I dare you. At least then <laughs> he'd have a, a reason to have the camera so close to his characters all the time. Yeah, exactly. Use some mirrors, but <laughs> but then you, you think about this now. Now I'm actually thinking of this is this is how inconsequential everything is because you just you just observe people shooting and then eventually you switch off. You just think, okay, that's happening, I suppose. But there isn't there is a dramatic sort of element in there that could be used, and it's completely disposed of. That I actually on the second watch because I watched it last night and then I watched it this morning. And I realized, oh, that's happened. There's this element of like, oh, there's these extra shooters in here like who, who are these people like one of them dies and i didn't even know he died right and then the other one is just like oh, i was howard howard something <laughs> and then it's just all of a sudden like, oh i know this guy and then just before he says who he works for he dies it's just okay that's a that's an interest that's a that's a good hook like explore this like who, who? but if we forget about this Im- immediately because they start shooting it's just, okay well this guy's dead let's just resume shooting and then i think it comes out that um the Black Panther guy, um, that was, these were his people that he just wanted to take the money and just kill everyone. But no, doesn't matter. Doesn't, no one cares. No one cares. 
in terms of uh in terms of i guess things i liked again that van scene was was pretty great and it ends with a great practical um head squish i'm always a fan of of practical violence that felt like ben wheatley going back to his like weird horror roots um for a second yeah (laughs) yeah for for like one second um Charlotte Copley also has a nasty, uh, nasty death. He gets his like nose shot into his face. When there's there's a scene where the syringe, I suppose, it's kind of out of nowhere. Like, oh yeah. The, I mean, heroin addicts they can go everywhere. I mean, like they didn't don't they sweep up the room ever? I don't know. But there's um, apparently there's there's an interesting bit of trivia with the uh, practical effect because apparently this involved rolling over someone's head, like for reals. Really? Yeah. So apparently, like, that's that's from IMDb, I think. Hold on, let me quickly. Um, the stunt in which the van rolls over Steve O's head was done practically. It was based on a trick from Penn and Teller, where one side of the vehicle is heavily weighted down while the other is not. Then the tires are replaced with softer rubber and or foam ones. And Ben Wheatley demonstrated the stunt himself to prove it was safe. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So like, okay. It's, that's, that's, that's interesting. He's a madman. He should just do magic shows. Don't make nonsense shootouts. Just, I want to see Ben Wheatley's head under a van wheel. Well, as see, he I'm... demonstrates that he can't die. So, yeah, so, and that's also from IMDb trivia. Another bit of foreshadowing and sort of like payoff that kind of just goes completely unnoticed. Like the film opens, I think, with Steve O saying, like, my head is going to explode or something like this. And guess how he ends? <laughs> um, so it's. I don't know. It's too deep. It's almost like the guy's kind of. It's like what he's like the equivalent of someone who's so sarcastic that he actually think he's stupid. <laughs> Again, it's like what you said about the Umbrella Factory. It's so far down on what Wheelie's focused on. Yeah, that we forget about it. It's, it's the thing is, like when I was watching the movie, I remember laughing a few times. I couldn't, for the life of you, tell you what jokes made me laugh. Like, none of them actually stuck with me enough to, like, be able to recall them now. Watch and Vern. <laughs> Watch and Vern made me laugh. I think in the, the opening scene, he looks at himself in the mirror and says, it looks like I got fucked by a polar bear. That made me laugh a little bit. Yep. <laughs> but, 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 like, besides that, like, I laughed at some of the, some of the jokes. And that's, and that's all I can say. But there, there are some sort of vestiges of character in there that I suppose, I don't know if... I don't know what you'd have to do to make them better because they're like there's rapport between Army Hammer and Shouto Copley when he just tries to shoot and just miss. I, mean, I suppose they're all like five meters away from one another. And he just keeps missing and then he just shoot, tells him, aim with both hands, Vernon, and he just aims with both hands and shoots a guy. I'm like, okay, well, this this kind of indicates some history between them as though, as though like he Army Hammer knows. This guy's a shit shooter, so he can't. He has to teach him, and this is not the first time this happened. <laughs> but yeah, but th- these these things are just too f- few and far between. Yeah, and it's it's not as if it's. I suppose in a way it is kind of worth waiting around for those little moments because they are nice, and the film's short enough to warrant sort of not wanting to scream or turn it off or tear your hair out. But at the same time, it's kind of just. It's a lot of dead air between the good moments and the good moments <laughs> yeah. are very, very lean. It's not as if there's a good section. There's nothing, there's not a scene that stands out. Not in the sense of artistic merit. I do think the film looks good at times. 
but I think that's more because everyone's just wearing colourful clothing like it's the 1970s. I think more of it comes from the fact that there are those good moments. It's just genuinely difficult to remember them. <laughs> but see, they don't even look like they're in the 70s. They look like people who are wearing costumes. They're heading yeah. to, a, to, a, to a fancy dress party where they've the looked, theme is they the look, 70s. Yeah. They look like they've fallen out of a charity shop. <laughs> and then they've shown up at an abandoned umbrella warehouse for a masquerade party. Yeah. And how and yeah and especially with how they handle guns and it's like with like army hammer kind of looks like a fairly modern special forces so per person with his you know with the way he handles assault rifles like that's not that doesn't look like you know uh, this is not Munich <laughs> <laughs> Just, <you know? laughs> but then okay, I wanted to ask you guys what do you think because this film when it was released was. Well, I don't think it was sold on Ben Wheatley being, but this being a Ben Wheatley film, because I don't think even to, um, until now Ben Wheatley is a household name of any kind. Well, that's it's kind of thing. like under the radar. Like, considering he's not a household name, he's d- adapted an Alfred Hitchcock movie to Netflix, and he's, nobody has seen. The, yeah. I I watched it. I wish I hadn't. <laughs> well, I mean, but, uh, like, he doesn't adapted a, a Hitchcock film because it was based on a book. Wasn't sorry, it? yeah, he had, he. he did a remake of the Hitchcock film, which was based on the book, and now yeah. he's doing uh, the Meg too. I actually damn that I'm actually in, interested in because I think he has a penchant for violence, and that's a that's a good idea for him to do something like this. I think did, did either of you watch uh, a field in England? No, that's 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 my one of my blind spot of his. High Rise is another one that's a blind spot. Yeah, High Rise I've not seen. I'm just I'm a bit uncomfortable about watching Ben Wheatley adapt JG Ballard, but <laughs> I I don't know how that will go. But a field in England works because it leans more into the comedy and less into the surrounding area. It looks beautiful, but that's black and white cinematography. Everything looks beautiful in black and white. And who? And I don't think it's the one he wrote either. I, I think that's just the one he because he 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 didn't. I think Meg too. He's not writing, and I think uh, let me quote that. Do I have his Wikipedia open? Oh no, he wrote it with Amy Jump. Uh, oh, oh, Amy Jump, his wife. Yeah, his wife. And now, now I'm just looking at this. Guess who's edited Free Fire? Because he edits his film as well. Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley. So it's not like you can say, oh yeah, so the editor has nothing to work with. Like he oh, did so it himself. Oh, so yeah, it was his fault. Okay. It's, his, it's, his, it's like Vincent Gallo. Like there's no one else to blame but him. See, yeah, <laughs> Ben Wheatley's a bit of a blind spot for me. The only one I've seen is Kill List. Um, and that's a good one. I enjoyed it. Um, Sightseers is on my watch list as is High Rise. So... Um, I've actually never heard of a field in England uh, until right now. I'm going to add it to my losses. It's kind of like, I, I like what he's trying to do. He's a very broad director. He can do a lot of stuff. Obviously, he started out with horror, and then he went off and... Well, the, know, the Down, Ter- Down Terrace is kind of like a like a gangster film, almost. It's like a... Um, um, yeah, I don't want to say it's like the Godfather, but it's kind of like the, the sort of idea of... Like this sort of um, like downtrodden sort of gangstership in England. So these people just live in shitty houses in council estates, and it's all like gangs and you know like knives. And then I think it's a it, it's a family drama as well. So there's there's a, a dad is a, a is like a head of a of a of a mafia outfit, and the kid is a bit I can't remember now. But there uh, there is one scene in, in there that I remember, which is a knife fight in an under an underpass under a road. Which goes on for like three minutes, and it looks it looks real. Like it looks like these people are actually stabbing each other. Like this, 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 this is the Ben Wheatley I know. Like this, he has these moments of this, just 
encompassing violence, but this is nowhere here to be seen. Like this is just, you know, these people keep shooting one another, but like seemingly inconsequential. It's like, ah, oh, this grazed my shoulder. Fuck that. Like there's, you know, like I would have expected, you know, some more gore in here. But yeah. Yeah. It, it, there should have been, but I suppose it's because everyone in the 70s is a bad shot. They were all on heroin and cocaine. <laughs> they were they were too busy getting high to, to do with their accuracy training. And then uh, one, one, one extra question I quite quickly wanted to ask. What do we think about Brie Larson? Because then she was, she, she jumped on this after her, went for the room, not the room, for room. She wasn't in the room. Um, and I think that was a, her first action film because then she went on to be in Kong, Skull Island, and, um, and then I think Captain Marvel. But um, she up, up to this point, she was like the short-term 12 sort of, you know, like dramatic indie sort of starlet, right? And then all of a sudden she's just, I think she was the sort of the leading box office draw. I don't th- suppose Army Hammer was a box office draw at the time. Even though it's an ensemble piece, I think it was. It, it, she's kind of the most prominent on the poster, and then she disappears for like half the film. I think I, I, I do like some of Brie Larson's stuff. I do like Room and uh, Kong Skull Island, I think is fantastic. I really, really like that film. Um, I think it's the, the trouble I have mainly is that I'm just not keen on American drama films, stuff like Greenberg and the unicorn store or whatever it was and just didn't do anything for me. Um, I think in this film, it's like you said, she disappears for half of it, but when she is present, nothing is particularly done with her, but that's the same for everyone. It's not, it's not her fault that her character's got nowhere to go. It's, nobody's got anywhere to go. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of Brie Larson. I like her stuff. She's great in room. Um, uh, and she's not good in Kong Skull Island because it's not a good movie. Oh, oh, round uh, one fight. (laughs) But um, but in this, I I don't blame a single member of the cast. I think every member of the cast is a good actor giving a decent performance for what they're given, but they're not they're given table scraps. They're not given much. They're not given characters, right? Like they're just they survive on their own personas almost. Like Killian Murphy just has a performance, yeah. Yeah, they all have like their own sort of gravitas, their own. But they, well, they they do have sort of chemistry based on the so the fact that they're just interesting people. But as characters, like to me, like Brie Larson is basically just she's not a character; she's just Brie Larson in a scarf. And then you know, Killian Murphy is just Killian Murphy with a mustache. And then you know, Smiley is a Smiley, but it's just you know because that's that's all. <laughs> when, when was the last time I saw him? But yeah, yeah, he's always kind of like. Like these kind of, army hammer is basically just army hammer being, you know, in having with a with a beard and Charlotte Copley is Charlotte Copley. Like everyone's just to themselves. I think that's the sad intention of it, though. Like if you watch The Dark Knight or Batman Begins, you don't see Killian Murphy, you see Scarecrow. If you watch uh, District Nine, you don't see Charlotte Copley. You see no, oh, you see Charlotte Copley. Like, well, come yeah, on, like, you see it's everywhere. very difficult to. <laughs> All right, that was a He's bad always example. kind of this. When you when you watch the Man from Uncle, you don't see. Well, you do see Army Hammer. My point is that some of these actors have been brought into this to play themselves essentially, because what what character can really define them? Ben Wheatley doesn't really know how to write for these people. They're just showing up and it's like that's 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 the heart. That's the cards he's been dealt. That's that's it. <laughs> and it's but, yeah. 
But does does but does he not know how to write for these people, or is this purposeful? Like, is this purposefully just these people are an unimportant because what what's more important is the uh, setup he well the the action set piece, if you can call it a set piece, the fifty five minute long shootout, that's more important to him. Is that correct? I think so. I think he's just flustered because if you watch something where he's working with relatively you know you know British comedians, stuff like Rishi Smith. Um, he writes for him very well. However, having said that, you'd think after Kill List, he could write for Michael Smiley. That mm-hmm. he could. Oh, yeah, he after, wasn't Kill List. Yeah. Was. And after Free Fire, you'd think he could write for Army Hammer. You could write for Sam Riley with Rebecca. He can't. So I think it's just a. Well, with Rebecca, he has material to fall back on as well. well so he doesn't have to write yeah. the characters. I think it's he's an odd one where it's. He's certainly not a bad writer because A Field in England has some really good lines in it. I think this is just a just a wrong place, wrong time situation where it's he's got a really good cast together. There are a couple of funny lines. It's just it's it's very difficult to rattle them off the top of your head, even if you have made notes, because it's it's just not memorable. I think it is I think it is just a sense of he was focused on the wrong area. He was focused on making the a gimmick movie. Let's do it, let's base it around an hour-long shootout, but he forgot the very important fact that if you don't care about the characters, you're not going to care about the shootout. Yeah. See, this is something I, I was watching this and I was trying to think of like successful films that kind of do something like this. So enclosed location um, and how they, how they succeed in what they do. And then two examples I have is one is Kajaki. I don't know if you guys seen Kajaki. That's actually based on a true story, by the way. So there's this, um, um, I can't remember, it was like a team of soldiers in Afghanistan. They were on a patrol somewhere and um, I can't remember if they, they descended somewhere, they, they took fire from some rebels or whatever and they just got stuck in this sort of place. It, it's like um, like a dried up riverbed and it turns out that this dried, dried up riverbed used, well, used to be a river and then what, it, what happened is that in in the in the ground there's mines everywhere because they just flew naturally with the rev- river and now they're just stuck in the middle of a minefield that actually happened like these people like lost arms and legs and then you all got medals out of this um but the whole film is basically these people trying to escape from a minefield and just feel their way out of a situation where every step they take could actually cost their lives and that's the whole film that's that's all this is and actually works because at least you have someone to root for because there's these characters in a predicament and you root for them to succeed. Or like, um, oh, Doug Lyman's The Wall. Have you seen that? It's another, another wall. Oh, my watch Sorry, I, 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 I was thinking of The Great Wall with Matt Tim. No, um, Doug Lyman's <laughs> the, the Wall. So basically, another simple premise. A guy in, I think, Iraq, I don't know, answers a distress call, goes somewhere and gets pinned down by a sniper and he's basically just hiding behind a, a, a small brick wall. And then that's, the, the whole film is him trying to es- escape this sort of predicament. But again, you have someone to root for. Like you have a character that you can hang on to and say, okay, well, he, we need, like, like you can say to yourself, we need to get out of this together, right? Like we need to, we need to do something about this predicament. Who, who am I to, who, who and not even a single character in here, like, 
Am I supposed to root for the IRA or am I supposed to root for Army Hammer's team of of shady people who keep double crossing everyone every, everyone every every second? Or am I supposed to root for Steve-O who apparently raped someone and then you know what is this? Don't breathe, you know. Well, that's the thing. It's, you, you, you've either got to root for someone or have characters that are interesting, even if we're not rooting for them. The anti-hero perspective. These characters are neither. Mm. They're very just. They're very flat, forgettable entities. But see, think, like, yeah, go for it. I I just think the difference is you describe movies. It, it the difference is you describe movies that are kind of thrillers and, and not yeah, really action so, yeah. movies. Um, like another good low three one location one. I guess from my memory, it's been a while. But buried with Ryan Reynolds, where he's just uh, in the coffin underground. Well, that's another thriller, right? Because then right. But, yeah, and when you also have stakes, you you, you look at sure. Ryan Reynolds, but he's like, well, there's a battery that, that that's gonna go, you know, go the phone's gonna go out of juice or something like this. He's gonna run out of air. Mm-hmm. The Hateful Eight is another one, but that, yeah, we're, we're circling back to Tarantino, right? Where single location, but again, there's this whole, and then none of these people are heroes per se because they're all have shitty sort of stained characters, right? Yeah. But then it also hinges on on the on on the fact that some of these people are not who they are. Mm-hmm. It's like this would have made all the difference if then if then some of these people were like play, like that you know in Reservoir Dogs for instance, these people are criminals like they're murderers like Michael Madsen is a bona fide sociopath right. Steve Buscemi is a sociopath and he uh, and, and he also, and, and he kind of makes the most sense out of all these people right. But you know the the difference yeah. the difference is Tarantino. <laughs> can make movies and and he knows like from the first 10 minutes you know the characters and you know who they are and they're go- like that first scene in the carriage with kurt russell and samuel L. jackson you know these people yep already in this movie an hour and a half wasn't enough to know a single one of them well he gives you hooks as well because then all of a sudden they start in like Reservoir Dogs starts with this idea who like who snitched on this like this was a setup like that's what Steve Buscemi keeps saying like this is someone who is in this group is is an informant like this this the police was too quick we this this couldn't have happened normally like this is this is this this is a shit show Mm -hmm. and then this is a hook and then another hook is when you realize oh Tim Roth is the is is the cop right spoilers for reservoir dogs 30 years later <laughs> but you know uh, but but that kind of keeps you going keeps you invested like in here it's just i'm just looking at people shooting one another very poorly by the way because it's all, all the wounds they're getting out from like bouncing bouncing bullets off of walls and then uh, there's one thing that i kind of laughs almost out loud because they're just these people are shooting and then army hammer throws a brick and he and, and he hits steve-o in the head i'm like how far is he because <laughs> they're like you know it's almost like like a like an Austin Power Austin Powers sort of situation where you see these people just like shooting at one another, you know, in in close-ups, and then the camera will pull back and they're like three meters, or maybe like it's not gonna be like Austin Powers, it's it's like naked gun almost. And they'll be like literally a meter <laughs> away from one another. <laughs> so Yeah, you both had mentioned like because we don't get wide shots, we don't know how long this place is. So like you're like, okay, they're shooting at each other from a good you know, few feet away, and then you'll see someone like belly crawling, and it'll be like, though you'll see yeah. another person. It's like, wait, how far are they? Yes. Are they like eight <laughs> feet away? Um, yeah. So there was a lot of confusion there. Like, what is the what is the distance? 
and then there's and they're all sort of in well dispersed. So the guy hide, hides behind the pillar and they get shot by someone else from a different angle. It's like how? and at some point you were like, fuck this, I don't care. Like I'm just gonna watch these people just do shit. It's yeah, it's 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 basically like spectating a a, a game of Counter Strike, and which is not necessarily the most entertaining. But yeah, yeah, it's I've watched Counter Strike games before because my my flatmate at uni was very invested in it, and I don't know why because I've watched it and I've played Counter Strike. It's a lot of bollocks. But playing but, is much better than observing it. Precisely, yeah, <laughs> and that's the issue with Free Fire. It's that it tries to be this genre film but i'm just not sure it understands what genre it wants to be hmm. I, it won't I, I, I know let's just say i i've always thought that ben wheatley has kind of grown up on the sort of the post tarantino sort of 90s in the revival so he's kind of the the part of the wave of people inspired by guys like tarantino soderbergh the cohen's P.T. Anderson, like these these people would have would have been the ones who informed his style, his aesthetic, and the way he writes. Suppose, but it, but it's all superficial in here. It's all basically just a mixtape of what he like. Someone mentioned, I think it was Kyle, when he was like, "This the trailer to this is amazing." And actually, this the, when when you watch the trailer, you, you could convince yourself that the film's going to be great. Because it has these great lines. Everyone take a chill pill. Like, all oh, right, where you know, Army Hammer says, like, now we're cooking. Like, you know, it, these these are trailer lines. These are these one-liners that just when you condense them in a in a one and a minute, one and a half minute, it kind of just make gives you the impression of something being very kinetic, very um, you know, very sort of snarky, very, you know, I don't know, very sort of hip, right? But it's not because <laughs> there's rea- long stretches of people shooting at just random locations. In reality, the movie's edited like a trailer. It, um, yeah, it kind of does look that yeah. way, does it? <laughs> no, I, I had one little note that I kind of wrote when I was just trying to explain to myself what what this aesthetic looks to me like, and I, I'm hoping Ewan's gonna like this because I'm looking at this sort of period setting that makes no sense whatsoever, apart from when I learned um, that yeah, it's just to remove the mobile phones you know what this looks looks like to me it's like a cinematic equivalent of a Lenny Kravitz song as in from afar it looks like a 70s thing but you look closely it's not it's fake <laughs> that's what it is like you know like I can are you gonna go my way rock and roll is dead and it's like this guy is not <laughs> is he's not Jimi Hendrix he looks like what like like, like he's dressed like him but when you come close, it's like, no, he's not. <laughs> Bless him, though, he has tried. <laughs> he has, actually, yeah. <laughs> like, look at him. Like, look at the video from Fly-, Fly Away. He looks like he wants to be Jimi Hendrix. But then you look close, he's like, no. Nah. <laughs> oh. Um, and, like, I guess I've been going on so long. It sounds like I hate this movie. I don't hate this movie. I just don't feel like much either way towards it. I just oh, think yeah, that it's, it's yeah. I think it's like a cable movie. Like you'd flip be flipping through TV and you find it on cable and go, oh okay. This is a Netflix yeah. and chill film because this is a red care. box film, yeah. This is a this is a, you don't care. Like you could be banging on the sofa and no one is gonna give a shit. Right? <laughs> just... I've got I've got it on Blu-ray for some reason. <laughs> I hope you bought it on sale. Like, like this. I was did. Like I, a, got, I remember like exactly. <laughs> I got it for three ninety nine on Amazon because oh, they got good. the sale. In. Very nice. 
because you know this is on Amazon Prime. It has been on Amazon Prime forever. Because <laughs> apparently it's like an exclusive for them. Anyway, well, but yeah, I'll, I wish I'd known that. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, I wouldn't have this bought is, it. You need to you need to get just go on JustWatch.com or whatever. Like then, then you'll know what's available for you for to, to stream for free. Ah, uh, it's they've got DVDs for a reason. If they build it, I will come. Well, no. <laughs> Yeah, so you like it then? <laughs> I I like Free Fire. I, I tell you what, it's like I, for all I've slagged it off, I would watch it again happily. But I just again, third time watching it, I couldn't tell you a thing about the film. I'll put it this way: to me, this is. I, I suppose we're just rolling into the sort of like final thoughts anyway, because I I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of running out of juice on this. Like I'm I, running out of ammo. I'm surprised we made it. This I, far. I know, right? I mean, if Jack had been here, like we'd be still going, going over. What, we'd be discussing you know, costumes. We'd be discussing costumes, or whether Olivia Wilde would have made a better. He'd um, be telling us how purposeful the the geography, the lack of geography is. <laughs> how is how this is a nod to Stanley Kubrick? I don't. Know. <laughs> I suppose it has to be geographic. <laughs> point I don't think anyways. It's set in Brighton. It, well, it's set in America, but it's shot in Brighton. Shot in Brighton. They want to forget they're there. I've been to Brighton no times, and I plan on keeping it that way. I've been to Brighton. This is not a happy... I mean, it's not a happy place. I mean, it looks nice, and, and then you go to... Oh, let's go to the beach, and the be- beach is shit, because it's made of stones. Yeah, that's the only <laughs> the only two things I know about Brighton, is the beach is awful, and Nick Cave used to live there. That's it. Like you think, okay, I can honestly... I, I envy these people who can go to the beach in Brighton uh, and then roll out their little blanket and lie in it, lie on this blanket and just like taking the sun, like 40 or 20 minutes of sitting just on my ass on this, on, 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 on this rocky, on this rocky beach. I'm like, I'm done. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand from now on. I'm done. Like, this is my day. I'm going to be, I'm going to spend this day on the beach standing up. That's what it is. That's Brighton for me. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I hate the beach. Just, just in general, like the concept oh, of the I, beach, like I, the I sand hit, and water. I hate the concept of hated. water and sand <laughs> meeting. I, I honestly, I hate it. I'm not a huge beach guy either. No, I, uh, I once went and uh, I went with my family. I'm like, oh, you're not gonna make yourself comfortable, get your shoes. I was like, no, I'm going to stand until we can leave. <laughs> I don't like it here. <laughs> well, you can, you know. I don't know. I don't. I don't mind. Like if I, if, if I don't have if I don't have to do anything, I can just read a book. That's fine. Um, although like two weeks ago went to the beach and for for a day so I, I don't know I, I missed a few spots with my SPF 50 and just burned the side of my leg like an absolute idiot because I, you know, haven't, you know. I haven't been to the beach in years I, like I can remember what it looks like but I can't it's sand and water nothing new like come on like, yeah I know but seen one you've seen them all <laughs> there's one near me and it's like there's no so you know obviously like it's there's grass obviously and then eventually like then you get the beach there's there's a line where it's just sand meets grass and it's just a straight line yep oh I, and then there's brighton which is like there's the road there's the pavement there's the rocks and there's the water <laughs> <laughs> and there's they skip snow. a couple steps yeah and then the beach is not that big either. So it's like when there's quite a few people in there, it's just like, wow, how are we all going to fit in here? My <laughs> God, eight people have shown up to the beach to say, go home. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back. So, <laughs> I can, in all fairness, like, because, you know, in all fairness, I actually think 
this is a quintessential two and a half star film for me because it's like <laughs> yeah. it's not neither here nor there it's kind of just like straight down the middle it's almost like it's like a cinematic laxative it's just like it goes in cleans out the pipes comes out doesn't nothing gets retained zero nutritional value in there okay, i'm with you this, on, yeah i'm with you on the two and a half i'm right there i was gonna say i gave this three and a half i think I'm, i think this might have slipped <laughs> yeah it's a i don't know it's there's a reason why why Reservoir Dogs is a is, is a masterpiece and this isn't. <laughs> and I, I have, give it time. Uh, yeah. This will be vulgar auteurism in seven years. Okay, it'll so, be up there with John Carpenter and Michael up. Bay, Ben Wheatley. That's the next big one. <laughs> I can You know, I could honestly see him as the sort of next John Carpenter because I think he has the track record to kind of just get there. As in, every film he makes, I think he. He has this sort of inspiration, like he has this sort of goal of doing something and people hate it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more credit to him because it's he does have his share of hits. I just, I don't think any of his films have made money. I don't think so. I, I, was, I was just like casually quickly looking looking up. Um, and even like Field in England that like, cost like $300,000 to make. Guess how much it took at the box office? Like 50 grand. <laughs> Let's try it. I think uh, I have. Let's just say high rise. High rise made four point one million on a budget of eight million. There you go. <laughs> a great success. Great success. <laughs> Rebecca, Maybe. unimportant because you know. It's That's streaming. the thing. Meg two might not make money. <laughs> Did you know that Meg two has a colon? Meg to the trench. <laughs> what? I don't know much about the ocean. Do sharks live in trenches? I thought sharks had to keep moving, like Bob Dylan. I thought, uh, the, the original or the Meg on the original? That came the out of like a... the original. No, because... It, the, Back the, in the whole, day. It's called Megalodon, Megalodon. It came out of like the soft crevasse of somewhere. Because it's like the, it's from like the land of the lost almost, right? Isn't that the children's dinosaur film? Oh, that's no, the you, you've seen you've seen the the, the yeah, Meg, no. right? The, no, no, I've not seen it. Ooh. I've seen I've seen that fucking film in the in the cinema. I saw it. I mean, three stars I gave it, but you know, like, I'm kind of that's, thinking I should that's generous. It. <laughs> I should probably watch because I kind of like shark films. You know, <laughs> I'm already scared enough of the ocean. I don't need a, another reason to be terrified of it. Well. Well, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. You know, I I was I just finished watching Sea Spiracy, so you know, like in the twenty in, in twenty years time, you won't have anything to worry about the oceans because they're gonna be empty. That's all right then. <laughs> um, but, Suits you know. me just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, this is gonna be a big no-no because I think we're, you know we're gonna have a massive problem anyway. I, I don't know. Final thoughts on 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 this, or should we, or, or do you want to continue about Ben Wheatley becoming the new John Carpenter? <laughs> the only thought I've got on this for final thoughts is it is a movie, which is a matter of fact. Really, that's that's the only thing I can say about this movie that can sort of. It, it's a film, and I have watched it. Nice. That, that's I about think it. I, I think that's what I texted the chat when I when I had finished it. I said, uh, "Free Fire it's is a film. a film. It's a film. Free Fire is a film." That's, um, that's, that's how I read it. It's a film. No, that was actually, the, that's the box quote on the Blu-ray. It just says, this is a movie. You know, like, it's whatever. It's it's such an average movie. It's on Netflix. I guess if you want something to just throw on if you're in the mood. But then again, there's other movies that fit that description that are better. 
on Netflix. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know what? Just just don't even bother. Whatever. Five out of ten. Fair enough. I mean, I, I pretty much just, uh, pretty much what I think. It's a quintessential two and a half star film. It's, it has massive problems. I think we've touched on all of them. I think if Jack was here, he would have told, told us we're all wrong. And he, if he's listening to this, and I, and I, ho- I hope he is, he's probably seething. He had, he's just had his aneurysm now. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that he gave it like an 85 out of 100, which he's smoking crack. I don't know what he's on. <laughs> but really? <laughs> yeah, he gave it. He has it at a five out of five with an 85. Hold on, I mean, uh, hold on, I need to refuse from friends. I'm, I'm going to read. <laughs> Every character is a standout. A witty and fantastic action thriller with such a wonderful script and cast. Performances are terrific. Every character is a standout, especially Smiley and Copley, who steal mostly every scene with Hammer a close second. The script is truly excellent. He really likes this. <laughs> some of the funniest dialogue I've heard in some time. The violence and gore are both equally dark and adds uh, such a strong weight to the film. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Lookshop. <laughs> so I suppose he liked it. He liked it quite a lot. Yeah, he's probably not very happy with this. No, not even a little. I'm, I'm it sorry. It was all a ruse. It's a ten out of ten masterpiece. <laughs> No, sorry, not so. Like, should have been here. Like, this should have ditched Venice and Dune and come in here and teach us a lesson. Because, or maybe you would have just emerged, you know, thinking that it actually is shit. I don't know. 41 likes he got on this. <laughs> oh, I, mean, people, I mean, people oh, seem to be oh generally positive. Like, I, I follow some people that fucking hate this movie, but some people really seem to enjoy it. Yes, that's pretty much what it is. But then if you look at the curve, it's just smacking them like the sort of bell bell curve distribution. It just comes smacking them at two and a half. The thing is, that is that is the bell curve for pretty much every Ben Wheatley film, because all of his films are very mixed in terms of reception. I suppose so. Yeah. But then, you know. I suppose I, I would have expected at least Kill List would be a more of a cult classic. Let's just see what the curve is on, on Kill List. That might be I, I feel as if though it's like I, I, I can Kill see is like the Wicker liking, Man. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit higher. This stuff, but I, I, I don't get why they'd hate it. There's nothing here that's completely like offensively bad. I, I suppose if you don't really like the idea of being of. of or you feel like bamboozled into just oh, I saw the trailer look looked like it's gonna be amazing and you sit in the cinema and just fucking hate this like no no you're just annoyed and frustrated at the fact that someone someone convinced you this is gonna be amazing sort of Tarantino esque sort of a bit of exploitation and it's just yeah it's exploitation you've been exploited I see I, I just don't watch trailers <laughs> <laughs> apparently a new Bond trailer came out I'll just wait until the end of the month. I can't avoid these fucking trailers at the theater because it's literally 25 minutes of trailers now before a movie. I clocked it yesterday for Shang-Chi and the trailers lasted 23 minutes. Oh, is yeah. that out now? Just yeah. 20, 23 minutes or did you have like Coca-Cola and like your There were a couple and... Coke ads, but like, I guess without it, it would be like 21 minutes of, of trailers. You should do what Gene says. He would just leave. <laughs> Until the adverts ended, and then he would march back in when like the the rating came up. That's very funny. But see, this I I used to I used to do this as well, like just get be late on purpose. But then again, I mean, do you have assigned seating in your in, in your cinema, Carl? Yeah, I do. Okay, so you can just like roll in twenty minutes late. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. I, I'm pretty sure I brought up the fact that I went to see the front runner on release day, and I was the only person there for like the screening of it. 
and it was kind of like I, I sat through 15 minutes of adverts what's the point I don't own a car I don't want car insurance I don't yeah. have enough money to buy a house or a couch that you're offering me I, I was very tempted to ask them to just skip it and get on with the movie yeah because yeah. it's you know but I, then again they have to make a living somehow yeah I didn't want to watch the new Bond trailer I didn't even know there was a new one out but it played before Shang-Chi yeah. so I was like no, it's like now, now every time I uh, well it should probably end next week but I've seen the trailer for Malignant I've seen like fucking 20 times already I'm done. It, it's funny it's a meme now I talk about it on my podcast with my buddy every before every single film I've seen since the trailer came out there's been a trailer for Jackass forever every that, movie yeah and it's so cool. funny <laughs> it's so funny every time and then it got yeah it got pulled so I'm gonna be able I'm gonna be seeing it for the next five months well, they That's stopped. The they stopped yeah. doing the bond bond trailers for a while because that got pulled like three. Yeah, times. they did. They yeah. stopped doing that for a while. <laughs> so hopefully, I haven't, I haven't been to a cinema in I, the last film I saw in cinema was Sonic the Hedgehog. Jesus. Yeah, that was a masterpiece, wasn't it? I really enjoyed <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog. It's not I'm, that bad. Honest, honestly, that bad. I'm looking forward to the second one. <laughs> well, That's an uncut gem. Is it now? Should it yeah. go on the list? Oh, God, honestly, yeah, I could defend that to the end of the earth. Okay, it goes um, on the list. I'm not even kidding. I go. I, expect, I, go to like, I fully expect you both to be. I'll, there. I'll be present, ready, when I'm going to order the Blu-ray. I'm asking for it for Christmas. Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay. <laughs> I go to the cinema like two to three times a week. So. I used to yeah. want to lift up at uh, Sunderland because I could just walk to the cinema, but now yeah. like the closest yeah. cinema near me is like, know, forty minutes. It's like. Uh, Where do you oh live? God. The Shetlands. <laughs> I live in a little <laughs> town. And this town, for years, oh, like Jesus. I mean, like about twelve years, it's been rumored that we're getting a cinema. And every time it's kind of, it's like, oh, we get to go to the cinema. And it's like, no, no, we don't. Yeah, I have, a, I have an AMC five minutes from me, a walk, five minute walk from me. That's the thing. It's like even yeah. even if I got to the cinema, nothing's on. They've stopped showing old already. It's just Shang Chi now. Oh. It's... Um, God, well, I, ho- I, ho- I hope, I hope, I hope you like Marvel. I do not. <laughs> Candyman should be still on. Oh yeah, that was it. I was going to go great. and see Candyman. Uh, they awesome. had one screening of it at half ten at night. And that was it. That's probably the best time to actually go and see this because probably there's going to be like one person in there, and you'll be like all in a dark room, personal screening on a massive screen. No, <laughs> the only films I see alone are the front row. I mean, the, it actually came close for me when the Night House was was on, and I'm just sitting there. The trailers are almost about about done, and I'm like, I'm still here all by myself, and it's like ten o'clock already. No, don't don't mention the night house, man. I saw that at like ten p.m. I had the worst audience. There was a couple. I don't think they stopped talking a single time. Really? They just, dude. I don't know how it is in the UK, but people just talk here yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. They they I, pay they pay fifteen bucks to sit in a theater and talk. I went wow. to see. Um, wow. not, I did not choose to see this, but my friend uh, she came through to visit me, and she said, "Oh, let's go to the cinema." I went to see *Downton Abbey* the movie. Wow, what a and choice! I, there's <laughs> there's smells in that room. It, it smelled of like catheter bags. You walked in, and it was just like the oldest person there. We're all sat at the front, just like crippled, just waiting for bloody Hugh Bonneville's ugly little face to come on the screen it's like mm-hmm. oh there he is darling and it's like i i was the youngest person there by about 50 years so and i'm in my know. 20s no but uh, you, you should admire him like if he smelled yeah. like, oh it's like smells like catheter but it smells like piss that means 
these people I, came prepared, I, as in, like, he probably had a stadium pal, you know? Jakub, you know, because, do, do you know about Werther's Originals? What? Werther's every Originals? Old, yes. Every old person eats them. I was, yeah, offered, I was offered a Werther's Original by the woman that was sat next to me. Nice. And it was it was delightful. I had a Werther's Original, I watched a really shit film. And it turns out it was spiked with fucking PCP. I imagine so, because that's that that is the only way to get through Down Abbey. God. And so now every time I see a horror film at night, I like I swear off. I'm like, I'm never gonna see a horror film at night again. And then I always do. Whatever. It's like bad, it's like four bad experiences in a row. It was like a quiet place part two, and then it was a conjuring three, and then it was uh this and that nighthouse. So I'm just I hate people, man. Quiet mean, Place 2, that sounds like a particularly bad one, considering... I mean, Quiet Place 2, I've, I've, I've actually seen that movie three times, because I really like it, and yeah. it and it was the third time that it was a really bad experience. So, like, oh. I didn't care as much, because I was like, whatever. Because oh. most people, I think, it. for in, in the first one, people were very sort of well-behaved, because then they were yes. all too anxious to even eat their popcorn. Yeah, <laughs> that was my experience with the first one, too, but uh, I guess people have moved past that. People have no, forgotten how to behave because yeah. of the quarantine. I mean, sometimes it does happen to me. I mean, it's not just like this is an American thing. It does, okay, especially when the when the screen is packed, if it's a Marvel film, there's going to be shit happening. Like this, this is just going to be well, a bunch of teenagers yeah. in there. But but like I had, I remember the, the new um, Child's Play remake. I had a mm. guy next to me take a phone call. <laughs> like he just took a phone call. He just, he's just talking. And I just, and I just looked at him. Like, I guess just looked to the side and just, do you mind? And he just says, I'm on the phone. Do you mind? I'm on the phone. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I, literally, the person ne- next to me yesterday at Shang-Chi um, was on a phone call through the trailers. And I was like, I was like, okay, this is trailers. I'm going to say something if the movie starts and she's still on it. And she got off it like during the last trailer. I was like, are you kidding me? But it's, it's, it is liberating if you actually learn to actually shush them. Like if you're confident enough, then then you know it's yeah. so liberating. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. so I'm so non-confrontational. I'm so I, non-confrontational, especially in the dark. So easy because then you know, <laughs> like uh, my, my sort of the, the penny drop moment, the sort of moment that kind of just turned my life around was during the screening of Mother and this guy next to me at two seats away. Oh, another from me. story. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like w- looking at his phone, like full fucking brightness. So I just like leaned over and, and asked him, to, I was like, do, are you going to turn your phone phone off or should I do it for you? <laughs> and he's just like, and then, then I realized because it's dark and he, you know, the only th- thing he saw was probably just my bearded face, just just leaning into him in the, like, in, in the glow of, of, his, of his cell phone. He's just like asking politely if he wants to have his phone shoved up, up, up his ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know. It's... It's very like, liberating. Oh my goodness. It, I felt so, like a newborn. It's just so strange to see these adults act like this. Cause like I saw a night house and then the next day I had a screening of fucking Paw Patrol and the kids in that theater were, <laughs> the kids in that theater were more well behaved than the adults in the night house screening. I watched the yeah. Paw Patrol movie with a few of my mates and they, uh, firstly, I'm sure. Why would you go and see this if you don't have children? It's what, pretty decent. It's, it's decent not, film. it's not, it's okay. It's all right. right. Oh. But, um, we were like surprised. Like you were like this nonsense in the, in the back. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It was, uh, when I was doing work for Northern Lights, they were like, oh, can you go and see Shaun the Sheep 2 for us? And it's like, yes, but I'm going to bring a friend with me. It's like, I'd you rent a kid. <laughs> Well, it's Sunderland. They've got worse up there. But it was, I remember I went to Endgame on the first night, like the night it was mm. out in Sunderland, packed, completely packed. 
not a not a single noise for that whole film. And I heard people talking as they came out. It's like, oh yeah, that was really good. It's like not 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 a single word was spoken. No cheers. No like, hey. Do nothing. people not cheer there? No, no. It's it's silent. When when the credits roll, about fifty percent of the audience stood up, left. That's it. And, Endgame is the only, or like like one of those Avengers movies, like Infinity or Endgame, are the only times I don't really get annoyed when people like cheer or clap because like whatever. That's just the vibe. Yeah. I don't really care. Like none of my um, audiences actually clap because, especially in Marvel films, because I suppose they're all men, and I think it's impossible to clap with one hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was the same experience for uh, Rise of Skywalker. But to be fair, I, I was quite drunk for that, so I don't really remember much of it. Oh, but, I mean, Rise of Skywalker. I was I sober, really... and I don't remember much of it. <laughs> I don't. It was, I, I remember the guy next to me just flipped the screen screen off after the film ended. Like directed by JJ, I was like fucked up, <laughs> and he left. Was, uh, me, my, me and my friend were talking about this a couple of days ago. We've been in the cinema together quite a few times. Neither of us have been sober when we went to the cinema together. And the worst one was Rise of Skywalker because he he kept seeing Richard E. Grant on the screen, and he turned to me, and all I could smell was whiskey, and he went. It's Christopher Walken. And then he just started laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dear. It, it, it was 20 minutes before the end, like when Kylo Ren has died almost. He stood Spoiler up. Spoiler alert. Sorry. sorry. I mean, if you've not seen <laughs> the Rise of Skywalker by now, I'm doing you a favor anyways. Yeah, honestly. It was, he, he stood up yeah. 20 minutes before the end as That's like the death it. scene was playing out. Why? We'll get back to that. Uh, and just as like that scene was going on, he climbed over the two rows behind him. Oh no! And I was like, "What are you doing?" It's like I need the toilet. It's like we've got twenty minutes left. But he's he's a strange oh. one. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, how about, just... we, how about <laughs> you wrap this thing? How about we? Yeah. Wrap, so anyway, yeah, 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 anyway, it out a little bit. <laughs> padded, padded the show about uh, for, <laughs> for like twenty minutes. Now, final thoughts. I think did we do final thoughts? Okay, yeah, I think one so. is it is it a gem or not? No. Okay, good. You want to... uh, uh, pass? <laughs> uh, I guess in I you give me three and a half. It's a gem. I eat it. No, Defend I don't it. want to eat the gem. It's a filthy gem. <laughs> it's I. From a perspective of I want something light and entertaining, fine. From a perspective of I want something a bit weirdy that I'll remember, no. I, I yes, it's a gem. I'll I'll wow. I'll I'll stick up with uh Jack. See, Jack this is yeah. this man's just doing it for you. I'm putting my head on the line. <laughs> you, can tell how, you can tell you can tell how passionate he is about it. I <laughs> I quite like him to take this uh, free. What what what's this film called? Free Free Fire. <laughs> I I am a big fan of Free Fire. And for the record, <laughs> no one's actually forcing him to say it. <laughs> I'm not held at gunpoint. <laughs> no, absolutely no, Jim. Like no, sorry, I'm I can't do it. Like especially when you think about this. Oh, uh, you know, uh, it's easy entertainment to put it on. And but then again, you could do something else. That's exactly the antithesis of what I think a, a gem would be. Ah, but Congo. <laughs> See, Congo is way, way better. Way more, way more but memorable. Kong, Congo is one of those films that you just stick on and See? have an entertaining time. In yeah, this is the, the, ah yeah, bollocks to it. Free Fire is not better than yeah. Free Fire is not a good gem. See, but if you yeah, because I don't I don't know if people still have cable. People have cable. 
No, I don't think. I don't so, even right? own a TV anymore. Like because like I don't know. I only operate through streaming services anyway. Like I don't even watch like I don't like when someone programs what I what I watch and don't. Yeah. Um. Like who are you, BBC, to tell me? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to watch what are you, my mother, Channel Four. <laughs> no, but... you don't own a TV. Uh, I've I've just got two monitors. I don't oh, own okay. a TV. Interesting. He watches films on a smartwatch. I watch them on my <laughs> telephone. <laughs> are you watching movies on your fucking phone? I've watched one Lynch. movie on my phone, and it was Paul Blart Mall Cup Two, and it was, <laughs> it was on the plane to go to Spain. I was like, I've, I've got an hour and a half. I when? watched one. I watched one too, and it was forty-seven meters down. <laughs> nice. um, My neighbor I... worked on that film. He was <laughs> no the, shit. It was the, the diving coordinator. The That's fluffer. awesome. He, he should feel the fluffer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but you know, in all fairness, I'm just thinking twice. So when I when I heard the so David Lynch quote, I was thinking I should probably rewatch Mulholland Drive. Picture in picture on my phone, just miniaturized in the corner, <laughs> just to piss him off <laughs> while watching YouTube videos of people it's playing. Like the guy that watched uh, Dunkirk on his iPod Nano. Beautiful. <laughs> there I you go. That. The way it was intended to be <laughs> seen. <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve's not got a thing coming. I'm going to watch Dune on like. Is know, that like makes Tamagoshi. it a fake movie, according to Patty Jenkins. Never mind. Ah, well, <laughs> Patty Jenkins' movies aren't the best. No, but then again, she was taking it out of context. <laughs> Why, like you didn't read... love Wonder Woman 1984? I, I adored Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> so you? long as it gets me sponsors and money, I will say anything. <laughs> it's just like, I want you to turn me into an apex predator. And this is when I was honestly in the cinema thinking, please turn, turn her into an orca, like right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the killer will strike again. So anyway, free fire. Anyway, free fire. Not a gem. I'm sorry. If this is, if this was a cable, like to use the cable analogy, we'll be like, if this was on cable, I'm like, fuck that. I'm not watching this. Oh, Kong goes on. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. The last movie I watched on cable was half of Avatar. <laughs> there you go. Half of Avatar. Not not the whole. To be is fair, it, it started the at eight or the and first ended half? at one. Uh, okay. The first yeah. half. Okay. See, that's that's not a good sign because you know, if it was great, you'd be like you'd, you'd stick it out. Precisely. So but it's on the, the big screen, so it doesn't count. Two and a half hours of Smurfs pretend and you're cosplaying as Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah. So you could watch this on cable, but they're probably playing a bunch of Tony Scott movies. You can watch those too. Oh yeah, totally. Like if you know, I mean, Spy Game, one of one of my least favorite Tony Scott films. I'll probably watch this over that. Man on Fire is on cable all the time. I know that. Oh, yeah. Man, yeah. Man I, on I once, Fire is a masterpiece. I once I've had never three seen copies of that movie. I've never seen. I've never seen. Okay. No. Okay. We're, we're we're finishing in five ten minutes. Like this is when you have to go and watch Man on Fire. <laughs> two and a half hours of the of your of your life, they'll be like, I I I, I want to do this again. Like right now, it's an amazing film. I mean, come on. And then you should listen to the episode that we did with Nick and Jack on this. I can, woo, steamy. Anyway, not a gem. Free Fire, not a gem. I repeat, no. Free Fire is not a gem. Now, top three, top three moments, boys. Like, whip out oh. your lists. <laughs> you go first. I've had to make several revisions to my list because my number one, it's <laughs> my number one's Michael Smiley. But that's more because I've got a soft spot for him. He does play the Irish character rather well. I think he embodies that well mainly because he is Irish. Um, I think it's just nice to see him in films that, I, you know, he's he's such a staple of British television. Like stuff like Luther, he's in quite a bit. But just actually seeing him on the big screen is quite always. It's, it's a nice treat. Uh, the second one is uh, the utilisation of John Denver. Uh, 
any time a John Denver song comes up in a film, it, it does make it a bit more bearable. Uh, barely so here, but you know, at least he's present. And uh, I guess you know the the the, the, pick the just three, right? <laughs> just three. Uh, Michael Smiley, John Denver. Creedence Clearwater is also on the stage. Killian Murphy's mustache. <laughs> I I like the, the just the bit before the end, before they've actually killed everyone off, when everything gets a bit hectic and it's the realization of all these deaths coming together. It's it's so mismanaged beforehand, but at least there is a payoff and it doesn't just cut to black or forget it's happening. You know, the bit where uh, Copley and Smiley are up in the, the phone room. That bit I do like. I do like that bit. Because that's when the claustrophobia of the earlier moments is utilised correctly. Nice. Kyle, top three. But remember, um, just three. <laughs> number one, the uh, the van set piece that, that is near the end of the film. I think it's the, the clearest that the action ever is and, it's, and it ends with a good gory bang. The second one um, is the the slow motion shot shots that kick off the uh, the the firefight I thought are, are pretty creative and fun. And then number three is just the cast in general. Um, Michael Smiley is great. Army Hammer, Charlotte Copley. I think Jack Rayner is an underrated actor. Um, he started out really weak and like, like what, whatever Transformers film he was in, but then he, but then he did this in Midsummer, and, and he, he's a good actor. He really is. So the, the cast in general. I'll hear no slander of Transformers Age of Extinction on this podcast. It's poo-poo. It sucks. Jack, Ren- Jack Rayner is just a younger and slightly slimmer Seth Rogen. <laughs> <laughs> he also has this sort of like, I don't know, he's just a, a guy you want to hug. <laughs> Not in Midsummer, you don't. Well, <laughs> no. Not in Midsummer, you don't, no. He needs a hug after appearing see- in Cherry. <laughs> um, it's not that bad. Does. It's not that bad. So, in my in my in my top three, I had this sort of the Steve O's head being run over. I was that was something, and yeah. and that's you know that's a good practical special effect, but that's been mentioned. So I might as well just I'll just keep it to one side. Although it actually ends with it ends with a bang, but then just ends with some kind of remember who this is who opens the door and says ah such and such Jack Reynolds got shot in the ass. I'm like fucking just why did you have to say this? You ruined the scene. You ruined the moment. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, Charlotte Copley extinguishing himself. Like he, apparently he was actually all legit on fire as well, so that's 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 oh, a good he did stunt. The star- he did the fire stunt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so sweet. he was legit on fire, and he, but he extinguishes himself like he's just in the shower, just like <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, when okay, so let's just so, so if if I imagine that you know I don't have the um, the the idling van being running people over because it's been used, so let's just say when Army Hammer lights a cigarette and then the sprinkles come on, that's kind of funny. And then, but in general, like well, to just add on to the shelter copy, I, I I think he's as a character, he's the most interesting. He is the most the funniest, and he has you know everyone take a chill pill, watch and burn. You know, he's, he has he has good lines. Um, and the, the the best moment I think is the entire tension during the arms deal when Killian Murphy is testing the assault rifles. That's the that's that's when this movie peaks, and that's twenty five minutes in. The rest is just downhill from there. Bottom three, everyone. You three, three. Yeah. just three. <laughs> I'd, I'd get my glasses, but I don't know where they are. Um, 
a good bulk of the subplots. That's probably the worst part of this film. The romance angle between Killian Murphy and Brie Larson, just it, it's very briefly established. Nothing is done with it. And then they use it to wrap up the film. Um, the bit with the assassin that comes in, that's just, that comes and goes. A lot of the subplots in this film just appear and then are either forgotten about or wrapped up. They're not really five, plots either, minutes. right? Yeah, there's They're not really. Like, oh, look at that. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it, if, especially the end of that feels like a cop-out, really, if anything. Um, the lighter moments, like that sort of little bit, the bits of comedy that are filtered through don't gel all that well with the, the sort of the setting, the environment, and what these characters are actually trying to achieve. These are meant to be bad people. These are the IRA and gun runners and stuff. It never feels for a second like they're actually a threat. They're a threat to one another, but they're not a threat to, well, I mean, maybe me, because, you know, I've got jelly arms, but to an, an average person, they're not much of a threat. And uh, the, the soundtrack, I know John Denver's in my top three, but what what is the point of the utilization? Yes, okay, what beyond? is in your bottom? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's, what's the point of the soundtrack and all these 70s aesthetics and the iconography if it's not utilized in a way that benefits the story? Because for this, it's, it's just a backdrop. It's just there for the record scratch moments, the diegetic sound that characters might hear or an audience will get a kick out of hearing bands and artists that they know. And it's, it's such a letdown because these are very good songs. Cool. Uh, Kyle, bottom sure. three. Um, bottom three. Uh, number one, the scene where uh, Brie Larson shoots Cillian Murphy for some reason. Just got a big question mark out of me. Still don't know why. Whatever. Uh, no, number two is there's a scene. It's the first person that dies. I think his name's Bernie or something. I don't know. He like he just starts walking through the warehouse and then gets shot. Still don't know why he was just like walking out in the open. It's um, like the Tarantino character in Reservoir Dogs who just gets off because Tarantino didn't want to be in there. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Um, Does anyone have a clue what happened to Mr. Blue? <laughs> And then number three, I'm just going to say the uh, the camera the camera coverage in in general, the cinematography not having enough uh, wide shots, not having enough um, not having an, enough angles, not showing enough of the warehouse to so you can have a concrete idea of where things are placed. Yeah, I mean, this may be the first time when I because I try, always try to have scenes in there or like moments that are kind of fun fun to poke poke fun. At, but I honestly, I, since I didn't retain much and I watched it twice, I, I, it was very hard for me to p- find like three moments. So I, they're all kind of more general. So one thing is the 70s period aesthetic is just great on me. It's all, it's basically just these people who are trapped in a warehouse on their way to a Halloween party themed around the 70s. It's all, you know, it's as I said, this is like a Lenny Kravitz song. Looks like from, it's from the 70s, but when you listen closely, it's fucking it's not not no, it's no, it's 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 fairly modern and it's kind of shit. So <laughs> so that's so there's that it's just people in people in turtlenecks and scarves. Um and, and a, another one that really grinds my gears is the well, well, I suppose I, well, I, you mentioned this in geography, so I might as well leave this to one side because it really bothered me. 
but what bothers me is the fact that there's no stakes to anything as in like i would have really loved the idea of introducing someone in there some character in that's explored for more than three seconds that you can actually think that there will be something kind of hinging on as in like someone who's not who they who uh, who, who they say they are someone who is a pol- you know police plant or something like this some someone's gonna betray some like something should happen dramatically because these people are just like stuck in there shooting at each other and calling people names it's very rude but the, <laughs> but one thing that kind of stood out to me and i don't think we touched on this i think well, we touched on this just briefly the mute the music in here for the most part is diegetic right so it's the some music that's just in the car radio or you know in the van or like there's just oh there's just john denver or credence or whatever but there's three or two moments in the film where it's just no, random score comes in like what why what what's this like keep this score like the film is essentially scoreless for the most part the only music is the you know like car radio shit and then there's these three moments where it's just music kicks in like why why do you need to do this pointless Piece of shit. No. Bad Ben Wheatley. No. Just no. So these are my bottom three. Anyway, Free Fire is available to stream on Netflix in the US and Amazon Prime in the UK. And if you live elsewhere, I suppose go and don't go and just watch figure out how you want how you can watch this. Or just don't watch it. <laughs> how about that? Anyway, can be also rented and purchased from the usual vendors and also is available on physical media. And then as you uh, as you and say, you can said you can actually purchase it for $3.99 on Amazon when the time is right. <clears throat> but nothing special. I can check right now. I don't think it, it, I don't think we'll ever have a criterion release. And I don't think well, maybe Arrow will touch it with a 10-foot pole like 30 years down the line when you know it's like you know when it becomes like the John Frankenheimer forgotten classic. I don't think it will. Nope. Um so anyway, this is it for this episode of the Anchor Gems Podcast. Where can we find you all on social media? Ewan, go first. Uh, you can find me at Ewan Gledo on Twitter, E-W-A-N-G-L-E-A-D-O-W. Yes, I know my name's horrible. Uh, you can get me on Letterboxd as well, at Ewan Gledo. And you can find my work on Clapper, Cult Following, Geek Show, and... Northern Lights? Northern Lights, that's the one. <laughs> I should probably just remember that, because that's that's who pay my salary. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you can find yeah. me all that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Kyle, where, where, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kyle Craigbaum, K-R-I-E-G-H-B-A-U-M. Also, I have a podcast, Kyle and Jordan Cinema Shakedown. I just shoot the shit about film with my friend Jordan. It's on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get podcasts, really. Okay. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Talk About Film and on Letterboxd as Jakob Flash. And you can also read my stuff on Clapper where I write, when I write something that's good enough for Clapper and on fashionfilm.com. You can actually all find all our stuff on Clapper when you know I think we all, we all kind of write for Clapper every now and again. Uh, I can also follow the show on Twitter at uh, Uncut James Pod, also on Instagram, but I, I kind of keep neglecting this, this social medium for some reason. I'm too old for it. Anyway, make sure to follow, like, retweet our stuff because it helps. Uh, if you want to get in touch, send us an email at uncountrimspod at gmail.com. Uh, so if you want to sound off about Free Fire or any film we're covered, that's how you do it. Or, um, yeah, you can also support the show with a one-off donation at ko-fi.com slash uncountrimspod. So buy us a coffee to help us keep the lights on. And then if you want to receive more stuff from us, you can also subscribe to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash clapperltd. Where, as with all the all the other clapper folks, we just give you extra podcasts for for two bucks a month. You get at least two extra podcasts 
one classic Clappercast, one something else. I think this month in September, where the the, the something else is the one hundred favorite films we're counting down because it's the two year anniversary of Clapper being a thing. So we're doing this. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, subscribe and listen. And there's also quite a quite a lot of stuff to 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 listen to that's already available in there. Anyway, so that and also listen to Clappercast at Clapper Podcast on Twitter and Death by Adaptation at Def Adaptation on Twitter. Links over there, you'll find there. So, so these are two another podcasts that are part of the Clapper Podcast universe. Uh, yeah, so be sure to tune in next week when we will be doing uh, just a little vampiric double bill and we'll be discuss- discussing Tony Scott's. Yes, Tony's back, baby. Tony Scott's The Hunger and Abel Ferrara's The Addiction. So look out for that. But for now, I hope you have a fabulous day and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.